Hello, humans! It's me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. Speaking to you from the bunker. How are you? Happy Saturday. Oh my God. Oh my. We have a great show today. The big interview is with writer and journalist Reed Forgrave, who uh, some of you may recall did a wonderful, wonderful piece about me and my work in Carver County. Uh, that piece showed up in the, on the front page of the Minneapolis Star Tribune on a Sunday in late May. So we're going to have Reed on there. You will love Reed. He is just, just unbelievable. Um, but it, and, and it turns out that Reed is quite the idealist. Uh, you'll uh, appreciate that when you hear from him. Um, in my C block, we'll talk about my work as an idealist. I keep talking to evangelical people and it keeps resonating. Um, it, so, you know how we group and label it? Well, we'll get into it in the C block. But let us begin here, here in the A block, uh, with our featured idealist. I'll introduce him by way of some copy from a July 21, 2023 Washington Post piece by Dave Kindy. Here we go. What were the chances? Thousands of miles from home, in a foreign land devastated by war, old friends bumped into each other on the street. It was Thanksgiving Day, 1945, when two U.S. Army soldiers met unexpectedly in Mannheim, Germany. Part of the occupation force in a conquered city that had been leveled by Allied bombing during World War II, they had sung together only a few years earlier in a musical group back in high school in New York City. The young men decided to spend the rest of the day together, attending a church service and then having a turkey dinner. At least... That was the plan. Their impromptu reunion was cut short just before the meal. An army officer blasted the two soldiers, one black, the other white, with a hate-filled rant for being together in public. In the segregated military of the day, the two men were not allowed to socialize. And back then, the punishment for black and white soldiers associating with one another was more severe than if they had fraternized with civilians in occupied Germany. The white soldier's experience in the army had a profound effect on him. The 19-year-old corporal, who also survived the horrors of combat and witnessed unspeakable atrocities while liberating Nazi death, death camps, vowed to become a pacifist and to work for racial harmony. Anthony Dominic Benedetto made good on his promise when he later marched with the Reverend Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama, under his professional name, Tony Bennett. The experience prompted the legendary singer of jazz songs and American standards, who died um, Friday at 96, I'm reading this from July 21st, to speak out for peace and equality for the rest of his life. And I will tell you, in his autobiography, The Good Life, Tony Bennett would write, quote, I couldn't get over the fact that they condemned us for just being friends, and especially while we served our country in wartime. There we were, just two kids happy to see each other, trying to forget for the moment the horror of the war. But, the, but, for, but for the brass, it just boiled down to the color of our skin. And in fact, in that incident, Tony, uh, Tony Bennett had run into 
Frank Smith, a black, a black man and a soldier who, who Bennett and Smith had become friends where they were part of a quartet uh, singing at the School of Industrial Art in Manhattan. That was their high school together. And they were together in that quartet in 1942. But no, as they walked into the mess hall, an irate white officer berated Tony Bennett for fraternizing with a black man. The officer was so incensed, so racist, that he took a razor to Tony Bennett's corporal bars, took them off of his uh, uniform, spit, spat on them, and then threw them on the floor. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Well, as it turns out, okay, <laughs> you know, Tony Bennett, that experience, as well as from seeing the horrors of the war of liberating a Nazi concentration camp that was part of Dachau, made Tony Bennett a lifelong idealist and pacifist. Thus, he never hesitated to perform with black performers like Harry Belafonte. And when he heard about the planned march in Selma in 1965, Tony Bennett went. Also from his autobiography, he wrote this. Hold on, I got to get it. Quote, I kept, as he, was, as he was marching in Selma with Dr. King, this is what Tony Bennett writes in his autobiography. Quote, I kept flashing back to a time 20 years ago when my buddies and I fought our way into Germany. It felt the same way down in Selma. The white state troopers were really hostile and they were not shy about showing it. Um, Bennett, uh, Bennett would remember being terrified by the violence but it only confirmed his belief that no one should suffer simply because of the color of their skin. And then Tony Bennett continued to speak out against bigotry and hatred throughout his career, often performing with black and African-American entertainers when it wasn't acceptable. And in fact, um, you know, he would perform with black entertainers and it was Harry Belafonte who he, he would perform with. Black, Harry Belafonte was black and uh, is black. Um, and, and, and he was the one who suggested that Tony Bennett go march in Selma. Tony Bennett would then go on to become um, one of the best jazz performers, best performers of jazz and American standards. He earned a Grammy Award for Album of the Year in 1995. But for his civil rights support, he received the Citizen of World Award and the Humanitarian Award from the United Nations in 2007. Um, and this is what uh, Stevie Wonder said about Tony Bennett in 2006. Quote, my friend Tony Bennett has been there for my people early on, earlier than most, and has stayed the course ever since. He has helped demand the social, economic, and civil rights of every American. That's from Stevie Wonder who gave Tony Bennett an award at the Billboard Century, um, the Billboard Century uh, Awards in 2006. Now, uh, you know, I, I had no idea about Tony Bennett's idealism. I had no idea about that. All I knew that it was that he was a fantastic singer. But his story goes to show us how indelible things can be, how we can... Something that happens to us can go with us, can carry with us for the rest of our lives and shape us. Now, 
On a happy note, well, that is a happy note, actually, but on a more happy note, we're going to play Tony Bennett's um, signature song in its entirety, because why not? How often do you get to hear the vocals of such an idealist? Take her away, Brett. The loveliness of Paris Seems somehow sadly gay The glory that was Rome Is of another day I've been terribly alone And forgotten in Manhattan I'm going home To my city by the bay I left my heart In San Francisco High on a hill It calls to me To be where little cable cars Climb halfway to the stars The morning fog May chill the air I don't care My love waits there In San Francisco Above the blue And windy sea When I come home to you San Francisco Bennett, idealist, humanitarian, and an icon of America. Okay, when we come back, I'll do the big interview um, with Reed Fargrave. Excuse me, Reed Fargrave. You'll enjoy it immensely. We'll be back in a bit. Thanks. And we're back. LE 2.0 Radio. 
And now for the big interview. And I've just got to tell you, oh my God, I have been looking forward to this interview for weeks. I am I am ecstatic. That would be the right phrase. I am thrilled to introduce to you Reed Forgrave. He has he's a he is a writer. He has written about sports and other topics for such publications as GQ, the New York Times Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and Mother Jones. Uh, he, the way he writes is long-form narrative, personal storytelling. He currently writes for the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. He covers all types of topics from around the state, Minnesota-based, from culture war flashpoints to military and veterans issues, from the changing world of policing to the Minnesota women with the longest fingernails, the Minnesota woman with the longest fingernails in the world. Okay. His book, Love Zach, Small Town Football and the Life and Death of an American Boy, examines the meaning of football and masculinity in America through the tragic story of an Iowa football player who died by suicide at age 24 after a lifetime of concuss- concussions playing football. Reed Forgrave, thank you for being on my, on my show, Ellie 2.0. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for the thanks for the wonderful intro, and uh, yeah, really glad to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, and we should tell let the audience know one other thing right off the top is that you were the author of a Star Tribune article about me that dropped uh, late May um, about my role as a school board member and my role as an idealist. Um, and then we should also let them know that you and I have become friends. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, that, I mean, that's how we got to know each other. But uh, you're someone, I mean, like, I, I, I try to, especially in my role as a newspaper person, I try to, like, keep politics aside. But just as a human, I love the way that you frame the world. And I find that it's uh, very in line with how I see the world uh, as a journalist. And there, there's a there's a quote that I included uh, prominently in your story talking about, like, the power of human familiarity and i think that that is just such like if there's a i'm gonna pronounce it wrong raison d'etre <laughs> if there's a if there's a reason for why i do my job that's it it's like i want to explain people no matter their background no matter if they're rich or poor republican or democrat or somewhere in between i, I want to describe people as they are and uh yeah that's th- th- that's what i think is you know my my calling and i think that's something that you in your work uh, are, are just excellent at. Well, thank you. That's very kind. And, and <clears throat> Reed, give us an idea. How did you get into this business in the first That's, place? I mean, honestly, it's all, it, ever since I realized in middle school mm-hmm. that I couldn't hit a curveball and was not going to be a professional baseball player, <laughs> like, this is all that I've ever wanted to do. Like I, in, in my intro, you alluded to some of my sports writing background. And that's you know, when I was in middle school, I was like, oh, I'll be a baseball announcer. That was kind of like, oh, journalism would be cool. And I do high school newspaper class and do like broadcast in high school and go to journalism school at the University of Missouri, uh, which I if anyone wants to talk about their journalism school, I would I would absolutely send you there. Yep. Um, but like it became more than just like sports, uh, sports. I love sports. I love watching the Vikings break my heart every year. Uh, I <laughs> you, love watching you and I, 5 million other Minnesotans. Yeah, but yeah, I'm making my six year old a Vikings fan. And I'm like, why am I, why am I doing this exactly? <laughs> um, but I grew up in Pittsburgh as a Cleveland Browns fan. So it, it, it can be worse. Vikings fans. It can definitely be worse. Um, 
but uh, but but then you know when I was in college, I just sort of transitioned to be like, you know, sports is great, and I've been privileged at parts of my career, you know, to go to some very high level sporting events and you know sort of have some of those pinch me moments at the Super Bowl, at the NBA Finals, at at the Summer Olympics. But like, really, like what I love about sports, I, I came to realize is kind of what it says about humanity, and that ultimately, like, the best interviews that I have, this will happen, you know few times a year and it always kind of tickles me is like I had this really in-depth heart-to-heart interview about something that's either you know beautiful or tragic or both um, or, or just very real and uh, this happened just I think a month ago with with a uh, uh, the head of the gender clinic at uh, Children's Hospital in Minnesota and at the end of the interview uh, I was like oh, thank you this is this is great I appreciate your time and she's they're like uh, you know this this felt like a therapy session <laughs> and that's when I'm always like, oh, I did this right. Because like it, it's like I got past the right. cliche and into someone's like what they really are as a human. And like you're 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 part about human familiarity. There's a there's a Ted Lasso quote from season one where the, the dart scene, I don't know if you're a Ted Lasso fan, but he's I'm... throwing darts in a bar and it's a really intense moment with his sort of arch nemesis and he and he turns to this guy who's a real jerk and he's like, Be curious, not judgmental. And, and and I think that is that's it right there. That's what it is. journalism at its best should be. Uh, whether <laughs> I'm writing about Ellie Krug or whether I'm writing about uh, abortion or whether I'm writing about uh, you know a military veteran, it's it's like I want to hear who you are and what drives you. Well, thank you. And you know, so you're like me. You had the worm. I had the worm as it. You know, I. I, I have I, I think I told you the story about my uh, uh, sophomore uh, high school English yeah. teacher accusing me of of um, of plagiarism plagiarism and then realizing that I actually wrote it. <laughs> so the that ultimate like insulting compliment, complimentary <laughs> insult, right? <laughs> changed my life as a writer. So, huh. but Reed, okay, let's talk about um, journalism in America right now, okay? And what what is your take? We're, I mean, there are all kinds of attacks going on relative to free speech, all kinds of, um, you know, people uh, masquerading as free speech adherents when they're really not. What, how do you see where we're at right now as a country relative to local journalism and, and, and certainly, if you want, to national journalism? Yeah, I mean, in typical journalistic way I'm going to give you on the on the one hand and on the other uh, type answer, which is maybe part of the problem with journalism. Uh, <laughs> honestly, like, like, you don't have to you can look anywhere uh, to find awful criticisms about American journalism, national and local. Um, and they're all right. Um, you know, I, I, I hate using the phrase the media because the media doesn't exist. It's not one entity. It's a bunch of entities with different goals, some of them goals of politics, uh, political agendas, some of them goals of uh, getting clicks, some of them goals of stirring the pot, some of them, you know, frankly, like, like I honestly believe the Star Tribune is, uh, is one of the places where I think a very honorable goal. Uh, does the Star Tribune have a political bent? Sure. But I think the Star Tribune especially Minnesota is a place that isn't trying to get those cheap clicks is really right. trying to do great journalism. Um, 
local journalism is struggling. That if there's one thing that I'm like, this is the biggest problem with journalism right now, it's in local journalism. You look at St. Cloud newspaper now has zero reporters and call me crazy, but I don't think you can have a newspaper with zero reporters. <laughs> um, well, and in a city that size, right? Oh, oh yeah. And it's like, it's terrible. It's and, and, and like, if I know we can talk about Fox news and MSNBC and podcasts and Twitter, but like, if there's one thing that I think really started the lack of civil discourse in America, I think it's been the death of local journalism over the past two decades or so. I mean, I've been in this business since I graduated college in 2001, and we've been talking about the death of local journalism since then. And it's gone up and down, but the trajectory is pretty clear. And I think that is such a big problem for democracy. Uh, It's just people are, are really engaged with a lot of things, but I'm not sure people are as engaged with local news unless it directly matters to them unless it's their kids elementary school i think people can be like i'm going to pay attention to the kardashians i'm going to pay attention to some of that really big national news what's happening in the white house i'll pay maybe a little bit attention to ukraine uh but like the stuff that really matters in my home i think goes people just it, it just goes past them a lot of the times uh i think the star tribune is very much we have a new publisher who started earlier this year who is Steve Grove used to be the used to work for Google and then he was a commissioner of deed uh, in Minnesota and he is he's really lighting uh, a fire under this place and I think I think you're gonna see we have seen even the past couple months some pretty dramatic and I think positive transitions uh, at the Star Tribune uh, but it's a it's a it's a scary time in yep. local media in general but like you know those times of transition, are you know sort of become times of innovation out out of necessity a lot lot of the times well not if they get wiped out i mean so where it's just going to be a you know a landscape of nothing um although you know here in minnesota we've got the you know the daily reformer that's a relatively new we have the sahan journal um Mm -hmm. you know that's that's a new development um and you know i think minnesota has and, you know, I, I'm not as plugged in in every state's uh, local media environment as I'm about to make it sound. But I think Minnesota has some of the strongest local media in the country, specifically in the Twin Cities. Like, yeah. I know greater Minnesota, it, it depends on the corporation or the local ownership of newspapers, TV stations, yep. radio stations. Uh, I know there are plenty of struggles in greater Minnesota. Uh, I mean, we talk about St. Cloud, but there's much smaller places with St. Vincent Cloud that, that, that can really yeah. struggle. And there's some like Benson, Minnesota has a remarkable uh, local newspaper that does incredibly well. Uh, up in Ely, there's a or Tower, I can't remember which one, Timber Jay is just this, this local paper that just hard hitting news, tiny paper, does great work. And I'm, you know, my job at the Star Tribune, a lot of it is statewide news. So I'm checking a lot of these mm. all the time. But there are certain papers where it's like there's just nothing you're just like what you get good high school sports coverage and that's it yeah and that is so dangerous well that's where i'm at i've got the southwest journal and uh it's you know i think they have one reporter who's trying to cover a bunch of different bases great the southwest journal was something like mine i live in uh southwest uh minneapolis and 
a lot of my neighbors used to love that paper. And then what it got sold. I, I, yeah. I, I don't follow it that closely, but like it used to be like really, really good. And I don't hear people talking yeah. about it being really, really good. anymore. So Reed, let's talk about, uh, I mean, you have a storied, just a storied career. I mean, one of the th- many things I love about you is we both have uh, Iowa in common because you wrote for the Des Moines Register for a decade and uh, you got to know Iowa that way. Um, and tell, can you give us a couple of your, over the course of your career, which is now over 20 years, uh, g- give us an idea of, of one or two of your most favorite stories. Oh boy. I mean, one of them is the story that led to my book. Uh, this was a story about a young man from Iowa, from small town Iowa. Uh, grew up in a very, you know, a family that, that had been on this same land since the Civil War. Uh, very ingrained in part of Iowa. He football. It was a very like macho family. Uh, you know, from farming to you know, loving cars to you know, sort of modern day. It, yep. There's a different definition of of what macho means, but. To this family, two things were the most important uh, for, for their definition of like what it man, means to be a man. And it was hunting, and it was football. And Zach Easter, uh, just a really like fun-loving kid, the middle of three brothers. He had played football from third grade all the way through high school, didn't play in college, uh, was sort of a reckless player. Sort of like, I think the player that coaches used to love, like, oh, he doesn't care about his – his own safety. He'll get out there and put his nose in. <laughs> Got all sorts of concussions. Yeah. Um, this was right before he graduated high school in 2010. So the timeline for the concussion discussion uh, was that it was barely being talked about. Right. And he died by suicide at age 24, uh, 2015, I think. Let and I went to his family's house in rural Iowa. I was there. Two weeks after he died, shortly after uh, they had the funeral, it was the first time I visited the family. And it was like one of like the most memorable moments of my journalism career because his parents are talking about him. And, and, and then they mentioned to me like, oh, you, you, you heard about the journals, right? And I hadn't, um, but the family ended up uh, giving me all of Zach's journals where he's basically documenting his decline into what would later you know, posthumously be diagnosed as CTE, the brain disease uh, that affects football players, not just football players, uh, affects anyone who's in like high contact yep. sports or been a very big thing in the military. You know, concussions is a huge deal in the military since uh, Iraq and Afghanistan um, with IEDs and stuff like that. But this, it, this story was very narrowly focused on this family and this young man and sort of his struggles with this. And then my book, I expanded on his story and his family's story. And really, it's it's a book about parenting. It's a hmm. book about what it's like to be a man in America, what it's like to raise boys in America, like what football means to us. That that story is is, is probably the one that impacted me most. Hold on. Uh, I got to make sure. Let's Is the book available? I mean, I'm going to right now. I'm just telling you you right now, I got listeners that are going to want to get your book. So go down to majors and Quinn, which uh, graciously hosted my, uh, both my uh, book opening in 2020 when we were still COVID lockdown. So it was all uh, virtual. And then when the paperback came out and we actually had human interaction again, uh, graciously hosted me in person. It's also on Amazon and and, uh, and, uh, audible and, all right. Any place to, and listeners, 
Fine hold, books. Hold on. And listeners, Reed's name is R-E-I-D-F-O-R-G-R-A-V-E. Okay, just Google his name and his book I will come up. appreciate it, Alex. Okay, all right. So, so there was another story. You and I um, uh, sat for dinner about a month ago, and you pulled up on your phone. I wanted to, if, if it's okay, you pulled no. up on your phone a picture of a wheelchair user. Yeah. Um, doing, going up, going up a rope to the top of a, like a gym and then doing push up or pull-ups <laughs> with the wheelchair connected to him still. And you told the story. And if you would tell the story about how he, he has a brother as well, also a wheelchair yeah. user. Tell us a little bit about that story. And, and that showed up in uh, Sports Illustrated. Is that right? Yeah, this is in Sports Illustrated in the June issue this year. Uh, and I'm hoping that story has legs, whether it's as a television show or documentary or something like that. But we'll see. Hollywood, Hollywood's messed up, man. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird world. But right. uh, th- th- this story is, I mean, to me, this is, I don't write sports for the Star Tribune. Um, I occasionally will, like, dip a toe into sports. Uh, but a lot of my freelance stuff ends up being, uh, sports stuff. I was a national sports writer for eight or nine years, so I have a lot of connections and interest in that world. But to me, the best sport sports stories aren't about sports at all. And this story about Peter and Aaron Barry is is exactly that. Uh, it's the most tragic, awful story you can imagine. And they would call this cliche, but to be glib, it's the most inspiring story that you yep. could ever imagine. These two brothers, when they were age eight and nine, they were on a family car trip. They live in Houston, grew up in Houston, Texas. They were on a family vacation to Colorado over July 4th. And on the drive home, got in a terrible car accident that killed both of their parents and paralyzed both of the brothers from the waist down. Unbelievable. Remarkable. Awful. Like you can't imagine a worse story than that. Right. And they had this incredible support group of family and friends uh, that they have an aunt, Aunt Simone, their aunt and uncle took them, took them in, uh, raised them as their own kids. God love them. God love those people. Okay. Oh, they're incredible. And like other family members, they, they, they just like, as bad as their situation was, they were in the best situation possible to deal with that. And part of what, what they were big sports kids, right? Like running around the neighborhood, playing every sport that they could get their, get their hands on. And after their paralysis, a big part of, Figuring out their new lives was wheelchair basketball. And both of them became excellent wheelchair basketball players. Peter Barry, the older brother, is one of the best uh, wheelchair basketball players in the country at his age. He, If he doesn't play for the U.S. team in the 2024 Paralympics in Paris, he will be on the 2028 team. If he plays in 2024, he'll be the youngest player on the team. Uh, he has a very good chance, but it's, not, it's no guarantee. Uh, but he, the, both brothers now play for the University of Alabama's uh, wheelchair basketball team. And this, I guess it was late winter, early spring, I had been talking with both these brothers and all these people around them for, for a couple months. I have late night conversations with them where I'm taking notes. And uh, I went and saw that to see them in the, in the national tournament. Uh, it was in Whitewater, Wisconsin. And their team won. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever oh, seen in sports. Or, or just in life. So, like, to me, that those are the stories that, like, sports can illuminate something about hu- 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 the ability 
for humans to push through suffering. Um, mm-hmm. And I think those are my favorite sports stories or any stories to write. Well, it's really, I mean, you're talking about surviving the human condition. However exactly. that condition may come at us. And, oh, my God, with two, you know, wheelchair users for life now. Well, Reed, um, you, I just got to tell you, I adore you, boy. But I really do. I, you know, and, and there's just something about you. And I, you know, literally, and we, I think we started to do this. You know, I could sit in a bar with you for five hours and I don't think you and I would ever stop finding something to talk about and laugh about. Um, but tell me, will you, what made you so idealistic? Because you absolutely are, and we have talked about this. What, what was it? What happened to you to cause you not only to be an excellent writer, and I'm not patronizing you, you are an excellent writer, but caused you to have a bend where you searched into the soul of those you write about? That's so interesting, because that, that is the driving part of my life and my career. Like, There'll be times where I'll be with my wife and she'll be like, you're being a reporter again, <laughs> you know, stop, stop pushing and nudging these people toward to tell about their moments. I, I honestly, this is going to be a weird answer. I think it's my lifelong battle with depression. Uh, I don't talk about that much with people who aren't close with me, but to me, the perfect story is that story of like, finding a light at the end of the tunnel, finding a way through <laughs> suffering. I haven't suffered in my life, not compared to, certainly not compared to Peter or Aaron Barry, but not compared to the average Joe. I've had a pretty blessed life, but like I still have a lot of darkness that I deal with just because I am who I am. But to me, like trying to focus on that good, like the real good, not some fake made up good. Yep, yep. That to me is, is sort of my way of sort of coping with the human condition. It, 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 at the beginning of my career, it was a flaw in my journalism where every story, no matter how dark, I want to have a happy ending. <laughs> Some stories just don't have happy endings, but I'm right. always, I want there to be a happy ending. And it can be really hard to see idealism and happy endings in, in, a, in a world that seems so broken, that seems, that is so divided, where people are on social media yelling at each other and uh, but, but but you see that idealism too, and it's it's hard. It can be hard to see sometimes, but I I just try to force myself because it's almost like if if I don't, I don't know what else there would be. Right. Well, Reed, I I could I could talk with you on the radio for five hours too. I just well, want you, you to your know. ratings go down. <laughs> no, <I> just, <laughs> very quickly. I wanted you to know that, pal. Um, but listen, we gotta go, unfortunately. But I, but I just want to tell you, um, keep it up, okay? I mean, you are such a gifted writer. You are, you are a gift to the world. And, um, and uh, our friendship, I have no doubt, will continue to blossom, all right? And just know that I'm, I, got you, I got your back, and, <laughs> and I care about you. And I just look forward, oh, my God, I can't tell you how much I look forward to the next thing that you're going to write, Okay. Well, I got a deadline for later today, so we'll see. We'll see it soon. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, thanks, Reed. Listeners, we've been talking to Reed Forgrave, who is a, currently a writer for the uh, a Minneapolis uh, Star Tribune, but he also writes across the board. Check him out. Uh, make sure you find his book. Again, the title of his book is Love, Zach, 
small town football, and the life and death of an American boy. When we come back from the break, I'll do my C block, and you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio, where I bring you interesting big interviews. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. muted here there we go oh reed is gone yep we're on a we're on a roll brett with good interviews great stuff absolutely yes. you know keys <laughs> okay all right we well let's keep them rolling too which i think we will yes all right And we're back on LE 2.0 Radio. I hope you liked Reed Fort Graves' interview. I he's just uh, just wonderful, one, just a wonderful human. So I so enjoyed interviewing. I I got to go meet him again and uh, sit at a bar and just talk to him for like three hours and just oh anyway. Okay, C block. Now last. Last week, I talked with you about having sat down at a Perkins restaurant with a evangelical preacher, minister, and about how I thought that that was a rewarding experience for both of us, who he has since contacted me and asked for a copy of my book, which I dutifully delivered yesterday. But then uh, yesterday, so yesterday, um, I deli- dropped the book off, and then I drove into Minneapolis to have... Um, some cocktails with a friend I had not seen for over a year. Dear friend, a dear woman, uh, dear to me. Um, And uh, I recounted to her this story that I told you last week about sitting with the evangelical uh, preacher. And then she says to me, Ellie, I'm evangelical. Um, And I'm like, I didn't know that. And she said, Ellie, all that evangelical means is that you want to bring the good news that Jesus loved everybody. That's all. That's she said to me. That's what being evangelical is about, you know. And here I am, grouping and labeling people. Okay, you know. And, and you, my listeners, you hear the word evangelical. I know how some of you, you know, may react. But my friend yesterday was so incredibly loving to me. She recounted a story about how I had said something once that had rippled to her and changed the way that she viewed the world and things that she was doing, which I just. So touched me. And I think that, you know, I mean, if you're LGBTQ, particularly transgender, you hear the word evangelical come out of the mouth of somebody. There's this automatic, you know, fear about being judged. But as my friend yesterday demonstrated to me, she said, Ellie, it's just about love. That's all. And I recounted to her about, you know, a church where things are going on uh, in Eden Prairie where some things are said and, and uh, there's an issue about the graduation location for that church for my school district on which I'm on the board. And, I, and she was telling me, well, that, Elliot, that's not what evangelical is, those words that were coming from that pulpit. She said, that's not what evangelical is. And so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm 
you know, 66 years old, I'm still learning. I'm also learning again how I group and label. I continue to do that, which we all do. Okay. But how we have to get past that. And the only way to do that is to sit with people and have conversations with them. Okay. Because then we realize, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. The images or the fear that I had of you. Okay. No, they're not right. They're, they're wrong. And isn't that what we need to do, everyone? I mean, really. We need to be brave. We need to sit with people. Now, as luck would have it, and I cannot get into the details because I need to preserve privacy, but as luck would have it, as I was sitting with my friend yesterday, she went off uh, to the restroom. I checked my email, and I got an email from somebody incredibly dear to me who I had lost. And in that email, they were writing to tell me that they loved me and that they were sorry and that they wanted to be back. And I started crying. This person is so incredibly dear to me. I started crying as I was reading that newsletter and that email and my friend came back from the restroom and she said, Ellie, why are you crying? And I just showed her the email. I held my phone up to her and I showed it to her. And she just pulled me in. She just, she knew how important this was to me. And she pulled me in and hugged me and just let me cry in the middle of a, a restaurant. <laughs> how could it be that that happened at that moment? with that person there. I don't know, but I've just got to tell you, it's the universe. I've just got to tell you that. It continues to speak up to me, to speak to me, to show up for me. It does. Okay. Well, there you go. Another show. I think we've been giving you some pretty good shows. We're on quite a run. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. You, you, I don't know if you've ever met Brett, but I just got to tell you, he is a sweetheart and he knows his stuff in the, he just, I just absolutely love working with you, Brett. And to you, my listeners, now listen, okay, between now and next Saturday, all right, you know what I'm going to say right now, Okay. Between now and next Saturday, will you go and do something, something small, something big, to make the world better? Will you go do that for me, please? Because it's important. And maybe go take a risk to talk to someone who might you might otherwise not talk to. Okay? Talk to you next week. Ellie Krug, over and out.